Today on Creative Drive, the case of the six-sided die. Hello everyone, I'm Eric Torres, an artist and designer living in Phoenix, Arizona. Creative Drive is a bi-weekly podcast for everyday people creating extraordinary things. I want to welcome everyone to this episode, and uh, fair warning, I'll be geeking out a bit in this recording about gaming, uh, specifically making a tabletop game. In 2008, I released Iconica, our first gaming experience created at Specimen um, here in Phoenix, Arizona. And, you know, as usual, I'll kind of give a little bit of background and then offer up some lessons learned and some recommendations for folks who might be looking to produce their own art and design merchandise. So after that, I'll also have a quick recap of the ADIM conference that I got back from just recently uh, that was held in Boulder, Colorado. So some of you listening might recall that on episode 4 of Creative Drive, I gave an overview of the World of Vernaga project, um, which is an ongoing project I'm really committed to, and it, you know, it involves fiction and art and design. Well, as a designer, it's been important to me, as that project has grown, to move it in the direction of designing experiences that bring people together. Um, a few years ago, I decided I wanted to create a game experience and I had not created a game before. Um, but I knew I didn't want to create just any kind of game. I wanted to create the kind of game I wanted to play with friends. Um, the kind of game that was, you know, innovative yet accessible to newcomers and the kind of game that could stand in a category of its own and really um, grow into something that was kind of special was the goal. So I was faced with a lot of challenges, as you might kind of guess, for someone who's never made a game before. Um, you end up facing a lot of things right off the bat that sort of say, don't do this, it's kind of too big of a project, and... A few of the challenges I just point out here quick and run down sort of the initial things that I think were the biggest for me to, to tackle. The first was money and time. And as you could expect, you know, there's an investment of time that's involved. And there's an investment of money. And I think money and time are probably the big you know, the two biggest resources that are impacted in a project like this, but, you know, discussing the whole financial side of this and the whole strategy with that is a whole other episode. I'm not going to go into too much of that here, but just know that in the long run, I found out that there's a lot more options these days, like, you know, um, online storefronts, you know, just-in-time delivery from, from vendors, all the things we already know, like digital printing and just all around, there's a lot more opportunities these days for indie game designers, as well as artists who want to make their own lines of clothes or toys or goods. 
there's just a lot of options for us nowadays so that really it is possible to keep your investment uh, low and relatively manageable, you know, when it comes to money. So that challenge was there, but it really was tackled with a combination of some, you know, thought and collaboration with um, other people who were able to kind of give me some pointers and tips on maybe some routes to go. So that was tackled pretty early on. And I was able to kind of form a sort of a budget for working on this game. Now, another thing that's staring you at the in the face when it comes to creating any sort of game experience is the setting. So where would this be this game be set? You know, would it be a sci-fi setting or a fantasy setting? Would it be more realistic? And um this is a main challenge for game designers because it really is tied into your audience. So as I mentioned before, I started by creating a lot of content for World of Renaga. So for this particular challenge, this setting, it was already a natural fit for me to set the game within this world. So the two kind of ended up, you know, pairing really well. And after realizing more of the character archetypes that I wanted to introduce, it was kind of full steam ahead on writing their profiles and starting to sketch out their artwork. I wanted the game to be character-based and driven by the archetypes of this world, and I knew that these characters, you know, they had different professions and different loyalties and different agendas. So some of them would be noble, but some of them not so much. And I just imagined them all interacting with each other in this contest that kind of pitted their different skills and abilities against each other. And I imagined myself traveling to this fictional place, to Renaga, and interviewing these characters in the game, and then like taking their pictures, which would be represented by the illustrations I did for their character art. And again, just incorporating these all into one sort of contained representation of that character. And really, in the end, it was a card. So that's what, you know, in the end, Iconica is a tabletop game, and it's made up of these cards that have a little board game element on them. But anyhow, this process came a bit easier in the end for me because the setting was already kind of there, and it was just waiting for me to discover some more possibilities. Now, this brings me to really the biggest challenge I had in tackling the concept for this game, and that was the gameplay itself, the mechanic of this game. And in, I think in another episode I can cover, I had like in the end about 11 to 12 elements that I had researched that I believe really make up characteristics of a well-made, well-crafted game, but I just didn't, I don't have the time today to go really into all those, and um, <laughs> I also want to be um, sort of respectful for everyone's tolerance for hearing all this. I'm assuming that some of this is going to, you know, really come together for you guys, but 
bear with me as I go through a few more of these points about the technicalities. When it comes to the gameplay, though, fun comes first. And I knew that that was the thing that I had to really focus on. If this game wasn't fun, it wouldn't be, you know, played and replayed over and over again. So the main challenge was something that had to do with creating a game mechanic that would be accessible for, you know, men and women and boys and girls and children um, of all ages. And, you know, there are lots of theories out there and beliefs and ideas that people have about what constitutes a great game. And a lot of those beliefs and ideals and such are, are great because, you know, again, they do get us to some of these, what are the common characteristics of video games or board games or, or other experiences that, that really, you know, draw people in. And I wanted to research that and I did, but the number one thing they must accomplish is fun. And I don't want to get into the weeds on all the technical aspects of making Iconica. Um, there were several pr principles, again, that I built into the game to guide its its flow and the, the pace of the game. And that, you know, hopefully influenced in a positive way the player interaction, you know, between people and Along those lines, there were a lot of questions that needed to be answered. So how would players take turns, right? How would the game be balanced? How would the game be sustained and grow over time? All while keeping the game mechanic intact and not breaking any, you know, key elements. So this was a huge challenge. And I got to say that for a while, I started to give up on the idea because... It just seemed too big. It seemed like just too much work. I worked a day job then, like I do now. Again, I didn't have lots of cash. I didn't have lots of extra time. And I just started wondering, is this really a project that's worth my time? Um, should I move ahead with it um, and really flush it out? And... For a while, it was in doubt as to whether I should do that. But the turning point kind of came, you know, several weeks after dealing with this creative block about the game's creation in terms of the gameplay. And this idea hit me that, you know, maybe in my quest to create this new and fresh and innovative gaming experience, maybe I had strayed a bit too far from relatable and tried and true game mechanics, ideas that people already knew and understood. Um, you know, again, the audience I envisioned included men and women of all different ages and backgrounds and cultures. So, you know, trying to take into consideration a broad audience of video gamers, card gamers, board gamers, RPG, you know, enthusiasts, I really had to decide on something that would that would really bring the relate the um, accessibility factor to a very very um, approachable level. I guess is what I want to say. But along those lines, I decided that whatever game mechanic I decided to create, it just needed to incorporate maybe this you know, a physical object of some sort that could symbolize uh, 
the accessibility that I wanted to bring into the game. And I turned to the one object that, in gaming, almost everyone encounters from a young age, and that's the six-sided die. I did some research on this little object, and, you know, I found all sorts of interesting articles and bits of history, and, you know, I won't go into all of it here, but I mean, apparently, and I just didn't know this up until a few years ago, but, you know, dice have this history that's really older than recorded history. People have been using little objects like this for centuries and centuries. And one example I ran across was an, an article about a, a site near Iran where one of the oldest, you know, backgammon sets was unearthed. And with that set were all these ancient, you know, dice. And when they dated them, it came in around 5,000 years old, apparently, and that's pretty ancient. <laughs> so it kind of surprised me because I'm like thinking in my head, well, yeah, you know, people have always used you know, these, these randomization, these objects that randomize decision making so that things are fair. I just figured in my head They'd always used things like this, but I didn't realize how far back it went and how cross-cultural it was. I mean, in so many different cultures, they have these types of elements, whether they're bones or they were in the form of, you know, bits from animals' hooves, which is kind of a creepy sort of idea, but, you know, they were working with more primitive tools back then. So anyway, you know, aside from the history lesson, most of us remember using dice with many games growing up, and it's just become this friendly object that stands for chance and possibilities. And the beauty of this little cube is that, to me, in its own way, it holds this, these ideas of mystery and excitement and, and what if, right? So once I had paid my respects to this little icon of gaming history, Iconica really began to take shape in terms of the gameplay. So I'll kind of go into a little bit of how that, that shook out. You know, I got into art and design to get away from math, right? But it seemed like, and it still seems like, it comes back to me in one way or another somehow. And with Iconica, I realized that Math was going to need to be a big part of this because creating a fair and balanced uh, game mechanic that could be spread over different characters that would inhabit this game was going to take some brain power. So I asked a longtime friend and master mathematician, he's not really a master mathematician, but compared to my capability, He's a master mathematician, so I call him a master mathematician. Um, but my friend Ryan, he helped me do the math and get this point system figured out that I had been conceptualizing. And we started putting numbers and stats and percentages of chance on paper. And all of these ideas are tied up in that little six-sided die. 
So, and I gotta say, I have admiration for the 12-sided die, but that's a whole other dimension (laughs) of math craziness, and we didn't want to go there. So, again, (laughs) we're trying to keep things accessible um, and easy to get into. So, what has Iconica become, and what are the lessons that I can share in general with you guys about creating a product either like this or you know, something different to take to market. Well, I can share a few things. First, you know, Iconica is now this universe of characters that's still expanding. And as of this recording, um, there's 66 individual characters, and they range from fighter types all the way to culinary experts. And all of these characters live on Renaga. And each character is their own, has their own role to play and consists of, you know, their own actions and abilities and whatever. So Iconica has received some accolades from like the folks at Wired online, specifically their Geek Dad blog. And it's received some good press from like gaming culture sites such as Penny Arcade, as well as locally in here, here in Phoenix, right? Um, there's a couple blogs like Educating Geeks that have have um, given an interview to me on, um, you know, talking a bit about the game Lightning Octopus. It's kind of our our local um, blog led by Jonathan Simon, um, sort of nerd culture, and, you know, Phoenix New Times. But I want to kind of get to the end of this by giving you some quick takeaways that you can incorporate or maybe you're already doing some of these things but maybe you can make some of these ideas even better in your own way but the first would be that when innovating when we're trying to do something different and new and fresh the past does matter and that's something I've learned at least I think I had this desire to be different to do things that are different and create different a different experience and I think differentiating yourselves, ourselves, I should say, as little brands or as individuals is always in fashion. It's always a noble idea, but we have to be aware of maybe the reasons for tried and true methods that are out there. And I think it's one way to, you know, kind of stay humble and keep your place in the whole scheme of things is that you got to acknowledge that some of these things work for a reason because they're very ingrained in our culture. Um, As I hint at with this whole story about Iconica, you know, there's just, there's reasons why this idea of a die or dice or dicing has survived through history for so long as a vehicle for adding chance and interest to games or to decision-making or to conflict resolution, even in some cases, as I learned. So, When innovating, the past does matter. The second thing I would bring out is to consider your audience, but always stay true to your vision. Um, Recently on Facebook, Phoenix Designers Group, there was some talk about, you know, when to listen to users and when to take user-generated feedback and really make the most of it, and then when to ignore it. It was kind of a, a good back and forth dialogue between some of you know, local designers here about 
when does that make sense? And what are the implications of that? Well, from a customer perspective, from a gamer perspective, I learned that your supporters will actually appreciate you staying true to your vision. Yes, they want to feel um, acknowledged and they want to be part of the process, but they also want to know that you're leading something, that you are in control of something, that they can get behind you and support you, and they know that you're not, you know, um, fluttering out around in the wind with your decision-making, that you have a direction. So keep dialogue open. Be honest about the lengths you're willing to go to in order to achieve your vision. But also be honest about what you cannot compromise on or will not compromise on. And be gracious about explaining that when you have to explain it or if you feel that you have to explain it. In the case of Iconica, you know, keeping an open dialogue going with the players has led to the game's niche success um, getting better and it's helped the game to grow as an experience in all these new ways that I never envisioned and that have been really embraced. So it's a good, it's been a good reminder for me. And the last thing is that when money and time start being, or start running out, I should say, they get in short supply, determination can take over and, and get it done. Determination can will you <laughs> towards completion and towards finishing. Um, you know, they say when there's a will, there's a way. And in your own projects, if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, you'll make progress. It may be slow, but that's still progress. When we give up on our projects, failure is guaranteed. There is no other option. So at the same time, I'd say that you know, I've learned being determined doesn't mean being blind to scenarios that may call for a complete reset of your approach. Sometimes that is necessary, but often, you know, moving and growing these projects even a little at a time can keep them alive long enough to weather, you know, some of the financial um, difficulties may we all may run into at some time, or the major creative blocks that we run into, or other life realities that might, you know, otherwise threaten to send your project into the archive bin, or worse, the trash bin. <laughs> and before you know it, you know, you're looking back on something you wish you had completed. I can tell you from experience with Iconica that when folks see that you know, you're committed to something, again, they're more likely to support your efforts with good feedback and patronage and word of mouth recommendations. So in the end, kind of to wrap up on this topic, you know, Iconico is a case of really me just not freaking out in the face of this ambitious project. I can't take now, I can't take really, I'm the beating heart of this project, but I now work with an Iconica development team that volunteer their time to help me test the game. You know, they help me with uh, feedback and dialogue that says, here are things we'd recommend to make this experience better. So 
if I had freaked out at the beginning, all these good learnings had ne would never have come about. So I think it's funny to me to reflect back and think the key to unraveling the mysteries of this big project was just this small six-sided object that's been handed down from culture to culture over eons of time. And the way to innovate in this case with this project was to acknowledge the past. So whether you're a musician or a painter or a designer, um, a fashion maker, a writer, it's possible that the past may hold the answer to whatever questions you might be wrestling with now or may wrestle with in the future. So, you know, that's it for the Iconica story for now. I think, again, in a future episode, I might run down, you know, 10 or 12 characteristics of, of great games, um, stuff that might help any of you interested in creating, like, you know, a garage-made indie game. But for now, I'd like to shift gears to another topic and give you guys a quick update on a design conference I just returned from. The conference is called ADIM, and I think in short it stands for Adobe's Inspirational Masterclass. Um, the event was held in Boulder, Colorado, and you know, it, it's it's sponsored by Adobe, and Russell Brown is the, I don't know his full backstory, I gotta say. I don't know his whole profile off the top of my head, but I do know he was very influential with Photoshop and the creation of Photoshop. He is still one of the gurus and a true guru. I don't call people that very often, but he really is. He He's just been tremendously influential in bringing Photoshop to the place it is even now. And he'd say he didn't do it alone either, but he, again, he was one of those leaders in its development. Well, you know, this year, well, I should say ADIM is all about a project-based environment where you're learning new things about Adobe software and Adobe products. So last year I attended for the first time in 2013 and we learned a, lo a lot about the Creative Cloud which was still relatively you know new at that point um, and we worked on a project last year where we made these um, beer labels for beer bottles and we did a, a case that was cut you know out of a with a laser cutter it's a really cool project you know and got to meet uh James White there one of one of my um I don't know I wouldn't call myself a fan of James White I'm not really I don't like the word fan just in general but I look up to the guy as being pretty prolific and uh he produces a lot of content and tries to be really productive so I really appreciate that about him but anyway met him there and a lot of other uh, folks that came that spoke on Adobe um, advancements with the software. And this year was really no different. It was kind of a repeat sort of approach. Um, they keep it pretty much the same, project-based. They have a lot of um, 
professionals that come in and speak and then present on certain things they've learned about the Adobe software and whatever. So uh, learned a lot about Muse and Illustrator updates and Edge Animate, which is a project or a, a program I want to learn more about. And we worked on a new project this year, which was a lantern uh, inspired by Japanese culture. Uh, it was basically a Japanese style lantern with rice paper and everything or washi paper if you want to be very specific about what kind of paper it was so anyway you know i'd say if you guys are are looking for a con to go to that's very project based um you know the thing is this is a small con and i think they'd like for it to be more supported by a larger crowd but i get the sense that they'd run into this conundrum that you know more people might support it but then they'd start to lose that whole project sort of classroom feel and I'd wonder if they'd lose the ability to provide you know one-on-one -on -one mentoring for folks who need it or it might get hard to to provide access to some of the equipment that they bring in to support this this con, this con. so I don't know I mean we'll see what happens there's talk of it morphing into something else but anyway we we all worked on these japanese inspired lanterns this year and you can see the project i finished it's on my portfolio site now uh, my portfolio site is behance.net backslash eric torres um and uh behance is spelled b as in boy e h a n as in nancy c e so that's behance.net slash Eric Torres. Anywho, um, I'd like to return to this con, and I'd recommend it for anyone who, again, wants a deep dive into Adobe stuff and, you know, just wants to have a good time. I think this is probably one of the, I've had the most fun at this convention of any that I've gone to and um, come away with lots of great network contacts, new contacts, um, they give out a lot of awards and prizes for just random stuff, so you can get some pretty cool stuff. And, you, you know, you come away with the portfolio piece, too, because you work on something while you're there. So that's that's it for that, and that's it for this episode, you guys. So do you want to submit a question for the show or share a comment? Email me at ericsdesk at gmail.com or contact me via the contact page at specimendesign.com. Coming up on the next episode of Creative Drive, The Passion Paradox. This has been Creative Drive. I'm Eric Torres. Thanks for listening. Today's afterthought. I guess it's okay that some people say, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I just hope I never hear those people snoring. <laughs>